Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Once somebody donates to that campaign or that fundraiser's clients, they're done. There's no ladder of engagement beyond that point that the movement has to take that first-time donor and give them an experience that makes them want to give to other political things. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, David Slifka, started his career helping Yale and the YMCA manage the investments in their endowments, but has moved his focus to finding and funding progressive political entrepreneurs. He's involved himself in a number of projects, including Rapid Resist, now Movement Labs, Vote Tripling, now Vote Rev, and the Organizing Empowerment Project. The founders of these organizations have all been on this show, by the way. I had the chance to ask David about why he switched into politics, how these and other projects have gone, and what he's learned in the process. He's also written quite a bit online about it as well. If you're interested in entrepreneurship in the progressive political space, you should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David Slifka of Bloom Ventures. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I grew up in New York City. I was fortunate to have a a good childhood on the whole. Went to a Jewish school through eighth grade. Saw modeled from a very early age the importance of being engaged in one's community and trying to make the world a better place. My father spent a ton of his time and effort trying to improve coexistence between Jews and Arabs, which unfortunately... He did not complete, but poured him his whole self into it. After college, I entered a small sub-niche of the investment world, investing for nonprofit organizations. So I worked at the Yale Endowment and the YMCA Pension Fund, not picking stocks or such, but picking investment managers to invest in. And it was a wonderful career after five years at the Y was thinking about other roles inside that industry or outside that industry. And that happened to be 2016 when 
uh, we all know what was going on in the world. When Trump won, I realized that much of what I thought I had known about politics was completely wrong. And that was what started my shift from the investment world into the political world. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions out of curiosity. I've come to the understanding that you come from a notable family. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. It's something I've always been a little sensitive about, but my father worked very hard throughout the the last decades of his life on various nonprofit causes. He co-founded the Big Apple Circus, which was for many decades a nonprofit circus in New York City. It's now a for-profit, unfortunately, because the nonprofit encountered financial distress. Arab Jewish coexistence was his major passion throughout his life, as well as circuses. And he absolutely set an example for engaging with the world and trying to make it a better place. It's making me more curious the way you're answering that. Am I right in gathering that you had a fair amount of privilege and that gives you some options in life that others don't? Having only very recently crossed the threshold of having the inkling of a desire to talk publicly about my political work, I'm not sure I'm quite there in terms of my family and upbringing. But yeah, very happy to engage those conversations. Tell me about your mother. What did your mother do? My mother's great. She did not have you know, sort of any sort of high-flying professional career. She did a lot of volunteer work throughout my life. She stayed home with me for the most part, but uh, was board president of the school I attended for a time, I believe, of our synagogue for a time. Now has done some really interesting racial reconciliation work with her synagogue in Manhattan. So the, the Jewish part of your upbringing is pretty central. It is, yeah. And it was central to sort of my first real political engagement as well, which is the night of the first Muslim ban when there were protests at airports shortly after Trump took office. And I was supposed to attend a friend's birthday party, but the notion of the Muslim ban just seemed so against the ideas and ideals of America in my mind that I just drove out to JFK to attend my first protest. And I'd never done it before. I wasn't really sure. I was like, wait, so I just go to JFK? Like, that's how it works. But I did. And I got there and it was a great experience. And there were lots of people protesting. There were people welcoming new arrivals. There were Muslim community organizations handing out pizza and thanking people for being there. It was great. We both went to Yale. What did you study there? And how was that experience for you? It was a good experience. I majored in political science, almost majored in computer science, which has also been a big part of my academic and hobby background. I majored um, in computer science science and then went on to grad school in political science. There you go. Well, I, I got an MBA, thought about getting a PhD, but ultimately decided against. But there's a lot about academic research that I appreciate. Did you study with David Mayhew? I did not. Edward Tufte? No, I, I attended a two-day seminar by Tufty, and I have all his books. And, you know, oh, well, of course, you love Tufty like I do, you know, fellow data visualization aficionados. I've been to his farm, and his, which has sculptures all over the place. Pretty interesting. I haven't been to his farm. Was it connected to data visualization in any way? It's not, right? Only in that he's interested in the visual. Was there anything 
that you studied in politics as an undergrad that stuck with you? I focused almost entirely on international relations. And so it's been fairly inapplicable to my political work, which has been much more about absorbing street smarts from the startup world and the political world. But Clausewitz, who was a military historian and theorist, who said that war is politics by other means, has always stuck with me. That phrase has stuck with me also. I think it's a uh... I th- sometimes think about that when I when I'm worrying about just how rough our politics c- are getting. That maybe this is still better. You said you got an MBA, and I know you went to Wharton. But what did you do between college and going off to get that? Uh, I worked at the Yale Endowment, which was a team of about 20 people that chose investment managers for Yale's at the time roughly 20 billion dollar endowment. How do you get? work at the endowment as a political science major? What was the entry there? I had also been interested in investing during college and was sort of exploring both career paths afterwards. But what happened really was I showed up at the first session of David Swenson's class for seniors that he taught each year. It turned out that everyone else in the room was an econ major that had been competitively admitted through a process that had occurred the prior semester. But David and his partner Dean were very nice about it. They said, oh, no, this happens every year. If you're not an econ major, you have no way to know about this separate process. So write the same essays that everyone else wrote and we'll see. They like my essays. and That's awesome. That's one of the great things about that school is just in every direction, there's somebody amazing that you might be able to study with. And did you learn in that job things that are relevant to what you do now investing in politics? Very much so. Explain. Um, The investment office was a great learning opportunity in a host of ways, Um, certainly for an investment career, but more broadly as well. It was really a people business. Picking investment managers obviously has quantitative elements, but is much more about understanding opportunities and people and how those come together. So really it was a a search for and and partnership with some of the best investors in the world. And that was another thing I learned there was the real sense of partnership that the investment office sought to build with each of its investment managers. We wanted to have aligned incentives uh, with them in terms of, you know, they would make money through fees, mostly when Yale and their other investors made money. And incentives are something I think a ton about in politics and are behind some of the the ways things are in some problematic ways. David Swenson was also a huge stickler for ethics, and that has always stuck with me as well. I, I probably shouldn't use the word stickler. It has some negative connotations. No, not when it's applied to ethics. I think it has positive connotations. When I was there, there was a big move politically among the students to get the Yale to divest from South Africa, which was under apartheid at the time. I'm considerably older. And a lot of pressure was applied. Did you guys face external pressure to not invest in certain areas of the economy or the world? Did that come to you at all? Very much so. So I was actually, for much of my tenure, the 
liaison between the investment office and Yale's Advisory Committee on Investor Responsibility, or ACIR, and could talk at great length about all of that. When I was there, Sudan and a horrible government-backed genocide there was the major issue around ethical investing. And I was really proud of what the ACIR, with my help and involvement, sort of invented and achieved, also with help from some great law students, where, whereas some other universities divested from a couple of companies in ways that probably were not especially impactful and, and painted with a pretty broad brush, Yale came up with a framework, which may still be online. We first identified companies that provided revenue to the Sudanese government, because the government was backing the genocide that was going on. And so the issue wasn't just making a statement that Sudan is bad, and so we wash our hands of Sudan. The, the goal was, can we reduce the revenue that's flowing to the government? Now, of course, it's a very small handful of companies in the world that provide revenue to the Sudanese government. Are they divesting from Russia now? Like, because, you know, that's like so much bigger and so much more complicated. And yet what Russia is doing is pretty rough. Yeah. In the same category. Yeah. I, fair, I, fair question. I don't know. We first reached out to those companies stating the concern that we had with providing revenue to the Sudanese government. Unsurprisingly, I don't think any of them changed their behavior, but at least they had the opportunity. And then ultimately, Yale divested from those specific companies. Um, and I think the only one that Yale had any material position in, probably through an index fund, was PetroChina, which it did divest from. So that seems like an interesting place to be for a while. What made you go get an MBA? The Yale Investments Office is a fantastic start to a career. It also provides exposure that's on the one hand tremendously broad, on the other hand, is a bit narrow. There's a whole world of people building things and creating things that, uh, that one doesn't really get to touch when one is investing a $20 billion endowment. And so many people, certainly not all, but many who have left the investments office over time, go to business school, I think sort of similar to my reasons to try and experience other things. And that was very much why I went, though I ultimately decided to return to the same industry where I had begun. So what did you take from the MBA? People have such mixed views, I think, of that degree. Now, I've asked that question of a lot of people, and it seems to vary a lot by the person, how they responded to it. I'm sure that's true. MBAs are funny for a host of reasons. There's some negative selection bias in who goes to get an MBA, because probably if your career is where you want it to be, you're probably not likely to go. That doesn't mean that no smart people do it. It just means that there's some negative selection bias. MBAs have huge value for people who want to make a substantial change in their career. So the quintessential example are people who come out of the military, say, and want to enter investing or consulting. My wife was a violinist who went on to work for a consulting firm. Did you meet her there? I did. That's worth it all in itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, am I gleaning that it, you don't feel like it was that big of, that wasn't that big a deal for you or wasn't that helpful or 
Were there things that it wasn't that were- big a deal? It wasn't. It, it was a nice experience. It was probably life maximizing, but not career. Not necessarily career maximizing. No. So you went back into the money management investing sort of world with the why, which you mentioned in your introduction. Is that what what happened? Exactly. Exactly. And th- and that was in a much more senior role than I had been in at Yale. I was the first hire under a new and first time chief investment officer and worked very closely with him to build up, uh, to upgrade the wise investment operation from an approach that had sort of been passed by, by most institutions to one that was more modern and looked more like Yale or other sophisticated institutions. So we hired a whole new team, uh, came up with a whole set of new processes. Uh, and it was really a very, a great process of creation, which I discovered that I really enjoyed. And that was probably the beginning of my entrepreneurial itch. You went through this transition into politics. Tell me about that. Explain what took you out of that world and brought you into what you're doing now. I was at a natural transition point. I joined the Y to help build this thing. It had been built. And in the background, the Trump campaign was gaining traction. And even though I had always read mass media about politics quite regularly, both liberal and conservative-leaning sources, especially once Trump got elected I and I started really learning more, I realized that I had, had all these completely opposite misconceptions of how politics worked. I thought that people had it handled, right? There's so many people and so much money in politics. What needs doing gets done. What needs funding gets funded. The billionaires take care of it. And after Trump got elected and I started learning about how that happened and the various resistance organizations that were getting created and what that process was like, I realized all of those things were really the opposite of the truth. You mean it seemed to you like an arena that was behind in certain ways? I wouldn't say behind. I would say more accessible for individuals to make an impact. That I had viewed it, again, as being fairly efficient in the sense that a, you know an efficient market is one where all the securities are fairly priced all the time. An efficient political world would be one where you know all the opportunities for impact are getting funded to exactly the right level by some set of funders and executed in exactly you know the optimal ways by a set of operatives. And I learned that that is very much not the, the state of our political world, unfortunately. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, particularly like in tech that I follow closely, there wasn't a market at all of people funding and building things previous. It was too small of a place. It was too much of a backwater. And also technology and politics is a fairly new thing. And it took a while to make inroads. You know, I can see both where that came from and how someone who was looking at a world of investments that was large dollars and big companies and would think, wow, this is not really happening here yet. Yeah, that was exactly my discovery because I kept finding people who were doing exciting things that were finding 
some degree of traction or success and kept hearing from them that the the ecosystem of support to help them grow those things to make more and bigger cost-effective impact, that that ecosystem was pretty much a wasteland, both for funding, but also for operational support. There've been a lot of developments that you probably came across, the Democracy Alliance, later on Higher Ground Labs, and New Media Ventures been around for a while, and lots of individual funders. I've been through this podcast, and obviously previously through my software company, been discovering how giant the world is of politics in terms of the number of organizations, the number of areas that people work in, whether it's the party, progressive organizations, more broadly, interest groups, political tech, all of these things. It's just big and it is not rationalized. It's moving along, but it hasn't been. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the my engagement in the political world has been sort of a series of my imagining that, oh, surely someone somewhere is working on that and discovering that, you know, sort of yes, but, you know, not really. Or maybe there's a bunch of people working on it and they're not very far along or. Yeah. Or yeah. they all are underfunded or are pursuing some good approaches, but there are other approaches that they just don't have the capacity to try, which is how do things really get invented in the broader world? Is that when there's some new development, it spawns dozens or hundreds of startups and there's a thriving venture capital world with dozens or hundreds of billions of dollars that fund those startups. And of those hundred startups, trying something, one or two are successful. And that's how many new things get invented and commercialized. In politics, instead of hundreds of startups that get funding from hundreds of venture capital firms, we get one to five startups that get funding from one to five capital sources. So tell me, like, as you start to look at that world, why were you looking at the world and what were some of the first things that you observed? I just wanted to get involved. I was exploring options for what to do after the why, wanted to make political impact somehow, was fortunate to have the flexibility to pursue that for some time, started pulling on interesting threads. One of those was co-founding an app with someone who's become a great friend an app called Amplify that grew out of Indivisible San Francisco. Who's the person who's become a great friend? His name is Ted Sussman. What was Ted and how did you guys get together to build an app? I had an idea for an app and had started pursuing it. You know, it would turn out, of course, that lots of people had ideas for lots of apps in those two years. Came across the app that he had launched as a member of Indivisible SF and just uh, reached out to him. And we were fortunate that our conversations went well and we decided to work together. What role did you play? We were the only two people working on it. So, you know, it was some of everything. You know, I spent a ton of time on the phone with leaders of indivisible chapters around the country and other local resistance organizations, which was very energizing in a pretty difficult political environment, of course. 
and also was part of what gave me confidence that the resistance was real and full of energy and power at a time when it turned out that not everyone came to that realization right away. What did Amplify do? It was a tool for these groups to take action together. It was really perfect for making coordinated phone calls to legislators. And obviously that was a major activist need around lots of legislative fights in the early Trump years when Republicans had a trifecta. What is a coordinated phone call? If Indivisible San Francisco wants all its members to call their member of Congress and tell them to fight against ACA repeal. Individual phone calls, not like... Everybody. Yes, yeah. coordinated individual phone calls. Yes. Okay, yes. I understand. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure if that meant like, we're all calling. <laughs> Fair question. Right. No, no, no. Individual phone calls. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it tried to make that more social, more fun. You could see who else had done it. You could, you know, like that people, other people had done it. You could have a streak for how many weeks in a row you had done it. Ultimately, as the world moved on to need other sorts of activism, the role of that app wasn't as clear. And so it kept on being used a little bit for some years. It ran its course. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it was through that that I met lots of other political entrepreneurs um, and also getting involved as you know a sort of mid-sized political funder that I kept finding these people who were doing great things with traction that could scale and were discovering that the support structures that existed for them were all but non-existent. Having bootstrapped my own firm, I marvel a little bit that anyone thinks there is, like there's, there should be some support structures. I had none at all, but I see how like in lots of other industries, it's quite different than it was. What other things did you take note of in like 2017, 2018, as you're sort of learning this space? The various quote unquote resistance organizations that were starting up indivisible sister district run for something things like run that. for something yeah. yeah it wasn't just tech it was more broadly organizations that were filling gaps in the ecosystem that's exactly right yeah 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 my work is much much broader than tech tech is actually sort of a a small part of my past and probably future work. I mean, you referred to yourself as a mid-size, I think, political funder, if that was the phrase. You were attempting to help these organizations with money and other things. What were you trying to do? Really, at the time, it was mostly money because being such a newcomer to the political world, I didn't have too much else to offer at the time, though I may have tried. There was another one at that time also called Rapid Resist, Yoni Landau and now called Movement Labs. So it was mostly just figuring out how the political world worked, basically, and trying to do some modest good along the way. Were you raising money to do this? Was it your money? Was it family money? Where was the funds coming from? It was a combination, but the costs were, and, and by and large, are pretty low. I think a mistake that the philanthropic community sometimes makes is starting with money and then using it to try and figure things out. Sometimes that's probably the only available option, but my approach is much 
more focused, which is to find somebody who has the seed of something that works and then build from that. And at the beginning in two of my three major projects, it's just been me and that person at the outset. And so the costs are pretty low. What are the three major projects? The first was Vote Tripling, which was an invention of Robert Reynolds, a behavioral scientist who I think has developed into one of the movement's best entrepreneurs. When he and I met, it was because I had read some articles that he published about this vote tripling tactic that he had created and in his nights and weekends had been implementing along with some small campaigns and organizations, you know, the Danica Rome campaign, a state legislative campaign in Virginia, a voter turnout organization in Montana, where he was from. But he was working a day job unrelated to this. It was in sort of voting research very broadly, but it was not related to vote tripling. But it was apparent that this was something that had traction. People liked it. It made all the sense in the world that everyone in the movement should be doing this. It was not a technology, to be clear. It's a technique backed by behavioral science. So ultimately, I helped Robert leave his job and we co-founded Vote Tripling and started off by flying down to Texas together and meeting with a bunch of campaigns to see if they would be interested in learning how to do this and implementing it. I interviewed him back at the end of 2018. I liked him. It makes me think I got to catch up with him. Yeah. He's come a long way since then. I mean, as has the organization. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the end of the very beginning. Yeah. It was the summer of 2018 that he and I started talking to campaigns. What were the other two? So my goal with these projects is to make myself unnecessary. And that's what happened with vote tripling. I was able to help Robert and I mean, he did just such a tremendous job, but help him reach the point where the technique had been proven out enough and his ability and the nascent organization's ability had been proven out enough that they were able to raise enough funding to survive without further funding or involvement from me. I'm still the board chair, though we're going to probably change that soon. And there were some near-death experiences along the way. Something I've learned is that even successful political organizations often have stories where they were close to having to turn out the lights. Both for profits and nonprofits. It's, it's Indeed. common. Yeah. Indeed. So anyway, the second was the Organizing Empowerment Project, where I hesitate to call myself a, a co-founder because Mike Fole, a fellow in Wisconsin, had created this relational organizing software seven years prior to when he and I met. His challenge was that it had always been in a for-profit structure, not because he was trying to make money, but because he hadn't been able to raise nonprofit funding for it. But people liked the software. What I kept hearing about the software was that it was the best thing out there, but it kind of sucked. And that struck me as a real opportunity because if the best thing out there has a lot of room for improvement, then it could be really good. So I started working with Mike, Ted, the co-founder of Amplify was very helpful there as well and helped us realize that the opportunity to make an impact in the 2020 election through relational organizing was so large that ultimately uh, he signed on to the project as the chief technology officer. That's a lot to bring to an organization. As it, a, yes. Yeah. It, 
it absolutely would not have been a shadow of what it came to be without Ted, both through his work, improving the product, as well as uh, some other Bay Area startup experts that he brought in. What worked so well was that Ted is, he is a Y Combinator alum uh, and is very enmeshed in he had great connections uh, in tech. And the great connections in tech, long story short. Exactly. And so, and because he's so special, he was able to recruit people, some full-time, some part-time, some nights and weekends, some just for the last few months, what have you, uh, but to really achieve something special and important there. I chatted with you when we were talking about this interview, that that episode that of my interview with him is one of the most, the couple most listened to, which I surprised me, you know, because it's sort of a niche thing and I don't know exactly why that is, but he's, he's got an interesting business model. He's got an interesting technology and I guess a lot of people are, are curious about him. Uh, yeah, that, that was interesting to me too. And I, you reminded me that I still need to mention that to him. And the business model is an interesting point because something else that a lot of people misunderstand about my work is that I've almost exclusively worked with and supported nonprofit organizations. And so the business model of Empower, the app of Organizing Empowerment Project, such as it is, was realizing, hey, the relational organizing is very powerful. And what are the bottlenecks to having more of it? And the answer was tools, training, and funding. And that if the project could remove those bottlenecks, then it would unlock a lot more of this powerful impact source for the 2020 elections. And so it's a nonprofit that set about to hit each of those points. There are a bunch of relational organizing software companies that were founded in and around that time, mostly for profit. Um, and continue to be. Yep. And, and there are new ones still coming. What's your sense of the state of that market? So it was my life for a while. It's not anymore. So I'm a little out of date at this point. It's a good illustration of how things get invented and why it's important to have lots of shots on goal, as it were, lots of people trying new things. So for example, leading up to the 2018 elections, there was a product called Vote With Me, which was very well executed. And it was an app that anyone could download and would give you a list of your friends. Uh, and you could see which ones lived in swing states or which ones maybe weren't high propensity voters and you could nudge them to vote. The concept made all the sense in the world. They did a great job of executing it. They created some really interesting thought pieces along the way, including one that's online called the cycle of engagement, which I recommend as opposed to the ladder of engagement. But ultimately, they were disappointed with the impact because what they and, and the rest of the space learned in 2018 is that it's almost impossible to get people to download an app. And the people who do are already super volunteers who mostly know other pretty politically engaged people. Subsequent efforts have mostly learned from that, not all. And so some people have driven themselves into that same wall. But th that's an important part of learning. I, I think that wasn't known or even knowable ahead of time. It might be dependent on whether the app is intended for a volunteer or intended for staff. Some apps 
people seem perfectly willing to download them as part of their job, but maybe not as part of their avocation. I don't know. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Right. I mean, if your job needs you to download something, then you'll download something. But there was, there's also very much a political tech phenomenon of that. The sale to the campaign is usually just the first step. Then there's a subsequent question of whether the team at that campaign and organization will actually use the product that the tech director or digital director, whomever has purchased. And in many cases, that's been the biggest hole in the funnel. I've observed that. What was the third thing they got really involved in? The third was a project called Collective Impact, which like the other two was also focused on relational organizing, except in this case of people with lots of followers on social media, say Twitter, Instagram. And so, you know, so you could say celebrities, but it wasn't limited to celebrities and it wasn't all it was mostly not people who had who were household names. I have not tracked that. Who's the other entrepreneur or entrepreneurs there? The current ED is a fellow named Hamza Salem. It was a very interesting journey. It struck me that maybe prominent people, celebrities, well, I'll say celebrities, but again, it's broader, uh, had platforms and the movement always needs ways to get messages out and raise money and get volunteers. And so there seemed like a natural pairing. So I explored the space of people who were working to build that bridge. And it turned out that, you know, certainly there were some efforts, but none really at scale. And part of that is because if you approach one celebrity at a time and ask them to promote your content, it takes so long and usually the return from it is so small that it's really not worthwhile. But we discovered, as you know, the tabloids tell us, that stars are just like us. They have friends and relational organizing works. It was only through trial and error, but what we discovered was that if we supported celebrities as relational organizers, that they could mobilize lots of their friends to participate in social media campaigns. And this was in 2020 when everybody's willingness to take action was just off the charts. Ultimately mobilized well over a thousand celebrities to post on social media for both nonpartisan and partisan calls to action and raised a lot of money, produced a lot of volunteers, generated a lot of cost-effective impact. So through your involvement in these projects, and I, I assume some others, you're learning uh, a quite a bit about this ecosystem and you've talked a little bit about sort of your early observations but what what did you what conclusions were you coming to about sort of entrepreneurship in the political progressive political ecosystem and how to assist it i mean i've read some of your pieces that you've written about this but share what some of that knowledge one conclusion is that oftentimes people in the political world, either setting off on their own as an entrepreneur or within an existing organization, find themselves in a position of needing to create new things. And that could be a new tech product, but often it's not. You know, For example, think about Indivisible always wants to discover new ways to support the leaders of its chapters around the country. That's not a skill that's taught 
in school. It's not a skill that's taught in political careers. It's not a skill that's taught in most careers. But there is this whole thriving community of people who spend all day, every day doing that. And they've developed some really useful communal wisdom. And so part of what I have done and am excited to do more of in the coming years is be more of a bridge in sharing that wisdom from the startup community with folks in the political world who see opportunities to create new things. I noticed that Paul Graham, who has written a great deal about startups, and I'd read his stuff online for a long time. You incorporated a lot of what he and some other people had to say in kind of finding a way to articulate what works more generally and what is different about this space. What is different? About politics versus the the broader for-profit startup world. This wasn't around when I started my company, but I started to read it when it did with sort of the lean startup and those sort of theories of how do you get a minimum viable product? How do you do customer development? Right now, there's sort of a way to build a company that has some variations, but generally like you will... If you find a good advisor, you will learn the terminology. There's a certain kind of road that you can go down that's fairly well-trodden. That has permeated to some degree the political space, but not fully. How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, in my experience, it's permeated the political space barely. I mean, certainly more so among people who are actively doing political startups. I'm thinking about the people who are trying to be entrepreneurial. They, they vary hugely in their knowledge of politics and their knowledge of business and their knowledge of startups. The most studied and the most experienced will know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But I think the, the degree to which it's come through to most people in the political world is just much too low at this point. I think there's a lot of exciting opportunity. To be clear, that's not because anybody in politics is unsophisticated. I hadn't been exposed to it until I happened to work closely with a Y Combinator alum. It's not something that people get exposed to. But sharing it out more broadly with entrepreneurs is something I'm excited about. I think the funder community also has a tremendous amount to learn from it. One thing that I've been continually surprised by about the funder community is that I think it undervalues signs of traction and doesn't understand necessarily the extent to which invention often starts with the seed of some of a need that people have and something finding traction and then the rest being figured out along the way. To be clear, by traction, you mean people actually using or paying for whatever's being invented or done new. That's exactly right. And it's one of the challenges that in the for-profit startup world, traction is people paying for your product. That's not entirely true, right? You can invent, you know, Instagram. At least using it. I mean, either you have to have tons of people using it or you have to have smaller number of people paying for it generally. Exactly, exactly. And that can be as simple as vote tripling where, He had offered it to a few small campaigns and they really liked it. That's a sign of traction. So you started something called 
Blue M Ventures? Is that Bloom? What is the name there? What? It, it, I, it's Bloom. So we help Blue Projects Bloom. And I say we, but it's really me. And I only created it because probably partway through the vote tripling or organizing empowerment projects, people kept asking me what I did. And I, I didn't have a good description for it. And my wife said, well, you should call yourself an accelerator. And I didn't completely love it, but it made sense. And so I started calling myself an accelerator and uh, made the website just to describe what it was that I do. It very much happened after uh, I had sort of found myself doing it. Who else would you say is in that same space? Far too few people, unfortunately. Eric Schmidt's team and Dimitri, or sorry, uh, Reed Hoffman's team have done some very interesting startup funding in the political world. You mentioned Higher Ground Labs, of course, although they only fund for-profit projects. That model has its own challenges and and strengths versus nonprofit projects. Yeah, but it's a small... There are other individual wealthy people, maybe with political advisors that are in the space too, right? And donor advisors that are helping them. Yes, but far too few and far less than the need. How would you like to distinguish Bloom from other entities that are adjacent? I've never thought about that. I just want to create large-scale cost-effective impact. Yeah, as, as long as I'm doing that, I'm happy. So if somebody has an idea which they believe can create large-scale cost-effective impact, political impact, and they would love help, what should they do? How could they approach you? They should read my website and the articles I've linked there that I've written on how to do that. And they should reach out and describe what traction they have and why they think they should scale. One of the challenges is that none of the projects I've done so far were raising money really at the time, and none were even investable by traditional funding models, right? Robert Reynolds was working in a totally separate job. Mike Fole was in a for-profit structure that he sort of wanted to get out of and sort of similar with collective impact. So often the the people doing this are, are, aren't exactly fundraising. They're just quietly doing something that people want. And often I found that introductions are the only way to find those people, but maybe this will get some of those people to reach out to me. By some odd coincidence or twist of fate, my interview that I conducted yesterday was with a young woman who's doing something called Donor Organizer Hub. And she told me that you're working with her on that. You guys came to me separately. Tell me about that and what's happening there. We all know that money is an important part of politics. It's unfortunate, but it's true. And we all get spammed with emails for fundraising. As I got involved in the political world, I imagined that it was somebody's job to create new political donors, to get more people engaged politically as donors. Fundraisers. Well, donors themselves. Let's start with donors themselves. 
And it turns out that actually, no, it's nobody's job. It's nobody's job to get people to start giving to politics who weren't already. Every political organization campaign has fundraisers for themselves, but rounds to zero dollars are spent by the movement on just getting people who are not already political donors to donate to whatever moves them in the political world. And that's a real gap in my mind. Another gap, I see that you disagree. I'm curious. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm just searching my memory for, you know, like it feels like every campaign is trying to bring in new donors through their own personal networks. Every professional fundraiser I've talked to is looking to augment the lists in various ways. The digital people oh, are. Sure. Right? That's, but that's not what you're talking about exactly. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because once somebody donates to that campaign or that fundraiser's clients, they're done. There's no ladder of engagement beyond that point that the movement has to take that first-time donor and give them an experience that makes them want to give to other political Thing. So I, I talk about a friend who, in 2018, he had never been a political donor before. He gave $500 to each of 20 House candidates, so $10,000 in total. What happens when you do that? You get on 20 spam lists. He got one phone call saying thank you and also asking for more money. And that's it. Oh, and you'll probably end up on a lot more than 20 lists. Well, for sure. For sure. That's yes. another pet peeve of mine. Yeah. What happens if out of the blue, you mail a $10,000 check to an organization? Most likely, if it, the organization's well run, you get outreach from someone and they say, wow, hi, thanks for showing up and giving us $10,000. How did you hear about us? You know, can, can we have a phone call or a coffee? And, you know, are you interested in coming to events in your area? Well, there's time to cultivate a $10,000 donor. I mean, obviously it depends on the size of the organization, but, you know, but the point would hold even at higher dollar figures. Um, well, I'll say two things. One is your $10,000 donor, if somebody waltzes in in 2018 and gives $10,000, they can probably give a lot more than that. But in any case, there's just zero ladder of engagement in somebody trying to give my friend positive experiences of political engagement or community with other political donors or education or anything else that will incent him to give to other causes in the future. The only thing that exists is buying his name and email address and sending him requests for discrete organizations. And that's inadequate in my mind. The other major gap, and this is more where you were going, I think, is that being a donor organizer or a political fundraiser is one of the most impactful volunteer opportunities for lots of people who don't realize it. Before I got involved in politics, I thought that Political fundraisers were things that happened with Nancy Pelosi and Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and that had you know only, only very wealthy people in attendance. The A list, correct. Yeah, um, but it turns out that you know, first of all, that's obviously not true. Political fundraisers for candidates and organizations happen at all levels and are very important. To put some numbers on it, lots of people want to volunteer to help. The movement in some way. And it turns out that if you can raise just about $300 an hour or so, that that is your most impactful volunteer activity on behalf of preserving democracy in this country. Most people are surprised at how low that number is. Lots of people who might host an event that raises $3,000 or $5,000 or even $10,000, 
they often feel like they're sort of small fries and, and even apologize for that. But they should know that actually they're doing absolutely the most impactful thing they can. And that when people get into this work, when we, Haley and I would speak with those people, we would often hear two things. One is, I can't believe how much I raised. People were routinely shocked at how much money they raised compared to what they had believed. The other was, they would say, I had been so scared to ask my friends for money, and I can't believe that my friends are thanking me for reaching out to them and helping them understand where to make impactful political donations. And so I think the movement needs a ladder of engagement for political fundraisers. And that's what Haley and I worked full-time together for uh, a good while last year on building. And I'm so happy that she's continuing that work through Donor Organizer Hub. What else are you working on? Always interested in other ways to create new political donors or create a ladder of engagement for donors of all sizes in politics. And so have a lot of time for anybody who's working in that space and, and chat with those who are as much as I can. Also thinking about pro-democracy work in faith communities, such as the evangelical community, and what opportunities there are to bring the country together in some way, in general, or at the very least, around the importance of a a fair democratic system for all of us. Is there an organization there or organizations that you're working with? No. In that area, I'm only at the very early stages of exploration. And so there may come to be one or there may not. If you talk to like new media ventures or a place like that, they have quite a process around soliciting people to make pitches for their money. They get a whole lot more people coming than they are able to grant to. It's a challenging process for the entrepreneur and time consuming. In the long run, do you think of Bloom as a place that's kind of informal and sort of instinctual? Or do you think of building something that's more in that mold? Or how do you think about where you want to take what you're doing? in that regard and others? I'm not sure. I'm figuring it out as I go along. Having been on both sides of the table, that is both the entrepreneur who's seeking funding and and the funder who's evaluating projects for funding, it's very important to me that I use entrepreneur's time carefully because I know how valuable it is. Something else that I'd love to help create if I can, but I'm not, don't currently have a a thesis on how to do it, is a way to better structure and streamline the fundraising process for political organizations, because it's not optimized right now for either group. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement that could make the lives both of the funders and operatives much better and easier. I'd say my goal is that anybody who's doing something with traction that can scale to produce cost-effective political impact will be able to get the funding and support that they need for it. Can't do it all myself, but I'd love to see that. I talked um, the other day to Jason Birkenfeld, who's at Schmidt Future. Oh, He mentioned something, if I'm remembering correctly, about 
trying to coordinate the funders more than they have been. And I know that they've done some meetings. There was something in Puck about that the other day, if you read that. And part of me was like enthusiastic, perhaps, that people are thinking together. And part of me was feeling rather cautious because the big funders have made bets not always as intelligently as, well, it's hard to know it's going to work when they, and people don't always know the market as well as one would hope they would, or they learn by doing over time. And sometimes they don't respect the existing institutions that are there. How much do you want to be part of people making bets together in the space versus people going their own way, which also there's plenty of criticism of people picking things that are very idiosyncratic or uncoordinated. And and places like Schmidt, they have a lot of talented people there. They have a lot to bring. How do you think about the, that balance between how we could be moving things forward through funding? It's a great question. And there's absolutely lots of room for improvement. But it's challenging to understand what exactly the the specific path to achieving that is or what it should look like. So I'll come at that from a few ways. One thing that I hear a lot from political funders, especially those who are not especially engaged in politics, is they say, oh, I wish there were just a plan that, you know, the sort of the experts could make a plan and I could fund that plan. It's a a logical thing to say. And again, I, I hear it with some regularity. And I was really happy in the past few months that a bunch of funding organizations kind of took a crack at it and all got together and made a plan and I think set a goal of raising a billion dollars. And that unfortunately, what I've heard second or third hand is that it hasn't really gained much traction in terms of bringing in those people. It was a a worthy experiment to run. Right. Sometimes when people say what they want, they're right. Presumably these other folks were hearing from would-be funders that they wished there was a plan. So I'm glad they did that. And I think it was a, a worthy thing to do. Was that the roadmap to American democracy thing? Was Deirdre Schiefling? Yes. Yeah. But I don't have direct information. All I saw was that she took a new job. Yeah, exactly. She was the executive director. I was like, uh-oh, that. That doesn't sound good, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've heard sort of, again, second or third hand that it, it didn't generate the traction they were hoping for, but I don't know what exactly that means. That's too much to pay for democracy, a billion. <laughs> yeah, alas. So that's one way to coordinate funders, right, is to make a big plan. But it seems like there's not necessarily appetite for that. I mean, like a super PAC is a plan, right? Like a super PAC, you know, brings some of the priorities or something like that, brings in a lot of money from various funders and spends it on independent expenditures trying to win an election. That's a kind of a encapsulated plan, right? Sort of. Well, I think what, but it's not, it's not an entrepreneurship really. It's not. Yeah. Or I think what, what funders mean when they say that is something more like, uh, you know, a plan would encompass everything, not just the ads that priorities buys, but also on the ground organizing and, candidate recruitment and inventing new technology tools and everything the movement needs. 
even things that aren't just producing votes this cycle. I mean, the, the, the thing that seemed to be the example of that was Democracy Alliance. I remember talking to Gary LaMarche about that, which was in the wake of, I guess, 2004. The Republicans seem to have had this long plan to take power in, in every area, which they were implementing successfully. And we were trying to fill the gaps. And a lot of things came out of that. Are you aware of them and what they're up to? And what do you think of, of that? Yeah, I'm just rolling off the board there, actually. I mean, DA was absolutely needed and groundbreaking in its time when it was created. And they have new leadership now, which is very exciting, and I think is going to try and build it in some exciting ways. The challenge, and this goes back to your question of how to coordinate donors. The donors know about each other. They have each other's email addresses and phone numbers. They get together in rooms. Sometimes those rooms are the Democracy Alliance Conference. Sometimes they're sort of ad hoc rooms that bring together a dozen or so people help people. found Facebook and Apple and and Google and things like that. And exactly and levels down. Right, right. And the donor advisors get together to talk about what they're seeing. The challenge is what do you talk about in those rooms? And how do you structure interactions between those people outside those rooms afterwards? If it's not to come around together in one central plan, which is probably more of a challenge than it's worth, given that a central plan doesn't seem to really unlock big new funding. What are the collaboration and community practices that these groups, these really important players in the ecosystem should adopt? So there's a community of funders and donor advisors, but interactions within that community are, are largely ad hoc. If somebody had a question about relational organizing tools a year or two ago, and, and I happened to have met them somewhere and they happened to think of me, then they might think to ask me that question. And maybe they would copy a few others on that message. But to really build a community that shares knowledge and helps everyone be better is is hard. Like what interactions really make that happen? And Haley and I worked on that a little bit and weren't able to quite figure it out. But I think there's a lot of opportunity because there's good, smart people working there who want to collaborate. It's just not obvious how to do that. And there also seems to be a real challenge with some of these people quite reasonably wanting to be private about what they're doing, especially if it's partisan in this time of people actually getting hit with hammers for being associated with partisan politicians or causes, there's a real challenge around transparency and sharing. And then there's always just ego and everybody wanting to go their own way and have their own opinions and think they know how to do it better than other people. So it makes me wonder how they seem to be so sorted. I'm sure it's not quite like that on the other side where you have like a Coke world that sort of drives a lot of centralization of resources or maybe a McConnell world or. Yeah. So on the other side, I'm sure it helps tremendously to have a hegemon like the Cooks who are responsible for a outsized proportion of the funding. And that I have been told is what gives them the, the ability to drive 
some of the, the plan for the ecosystem. On our side, there's some need for privacy, but before getting involved in this work, I would have thought that 90 to 100% of the materials I would be seeing would be really confidential. And I'd say the actual number is more like 10%. And even that, if I mailed them to Donald Trump tomorrow, it's not like the world would change dramatically. And so I think the the challenges are a fewfold. One is measurement. It's very hard to know what works and what doesn't. There's really only this one measurement cost per vote. And even that only looks at a single electoral cycle when obviously volunteers and candidates and donors last through many, many cycles. In that world, it's very hard to know who's doing a great job, who's not doing a great job, who to follow, who not to follow. And then it becomes very hard also to communicate that to donors. So I think that's a, a major challenge in funders coordinating better. The other is the the one I mentioned earlier, you know, like say, Nathaniel, you had a list of a dozen donor advisors who work for billionaires and say that you were such a person yourself. Literally, what are the communications that you would send to that list in order to, quote unquote, coordinate funding, right? You'd probably email them and you'd ask them the occasional question about, hey, have you seen this organization that's fundraising? If you found something great, you'd email them and say, hey, I think this organization's great. Will you help me fund them? And that happens. But there's got to be opportunities for more than that. But more than that, by and large, doesn't really happen. What else should I have asked you that I haven't about this space that you'd like to talk about? We've covered a lot of great stuff, and, and thank you for taking the time. One thing we didn't touch on is the broader framework for what I'd like to achieve, which I distilled into three points recently, which are win, deliver, and heal. I think we need to win elections in the short term to keep people who care about democracy in power, but that's not adequate. I think democracy also needs to deliver for people, both in material ways in terms of policy, but also in terms of culture and giving people a sense that they're in a country that's working for them and moving in the right direction, which gets into media and messaging. And I think we also need to heal in the sense that nobody wants to live in a country where it feels like life is at stake every two years. And so somehow... We've got to find ways to bring down the temperature. And I got those from a recent report by Rachel Kleinfeld at the Carnegie Endowment. And her recommendations have a lot more detail to them. And I wanted to absorb her recommendations in a way that I could keep in mind. And so I distilled them down imperfectly into those three points. I think I've also sought to interview people who are working in all those areas. I've interviewed people who are experts in conflict resolution the heel category or people who are trying to get people to talk over across divides. Some of the experts in the nonpartisan organizations in that area seem really critical right now. And then certainly it's a moment where when one party has become corrupted, my partisanship is aflame right now and winning is highly critical all over the country. How are you thinking about the country right now and 
I always wonder how we go about our business of regular politics and trying to make these improvements on the margin when the stakes are potentially system changing and drastic at a very big strategic level. It's a scary time. I agree with Dimitri who shared with you a few months ago that he sees a very material risk. I think he said as high as 50% that American democracy slips into something darker and more like a competitive autocracy in the coming years. I think you're right that regular politics is inadequate to the moment. We're not even maybe doing regular politics that well sometimes. I know we got a lot of smart people trying to do good things, and some of them are doing great things. People focused on crime rates or whatever can drive voters more so than philosophical questions sometimes. One very smart person in the movement said that democracy is mostly an elite concern. And that may be right. And maybe that's as it should be, that uh, most people shouldn't have to go about their lives worrying about their system of government and instead should be able to worry about things closer to home. So what you're touching on gets at a lot of things. It gets to the importance of media infrastructure and uh, capturing attention of driving stories of using power in ways that, that drives public attention uh, and, and drives narratives of elected leaders continually being in the public eye in ways that call people to action and, and mo- motivate people to care about the country in positive ways. Unfortunately, it feels like the other side has more of a lot of those things right now, but hopefully we'll be able to change that. Yeah. Plenty to work on. I really enjoyed talking to you. It's good to talk to another person who's putting their life into trying to make things better. And I think these things add up, you know, that's why I enjoy learning about new efforts. Is there anything else you want to say? No, thank you. That was David Slifka. He's at bloom.ventures. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.